turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report and uh, a lot to cover. We'll talk with John Schlafly in a few moments. John Schlafly, he writes his weekly column, and this week it is on the censorship pandemic. Uh, at a, he calls it a pandemic of censorship, and he's talking about uh, Joe Rogan. He's talking about Let's Go Brandon. He's talking about the big tech giants. It's an important topic. Um, the question I have, and I'll ask John Schlafly this is, yeah, okay, there's censorship happening all around. It's happening generally in one direction. If you're politically incorrect, if you challenge the establishment or status quo, if you're conservative, if you're for Trump, you're going to find yourself censored, knocked off platforms, limited. If you're with the establishment, with the liberal agenda, with the uh, sort of COVID um, pandemic uh, lock everything down field, then you're going to be fine. And my question is, who's going to stand up to it and how? Doesn't look like there's many leaders that are doing it. Doesn't look like it's happening. So I, I don't know. You know, you're kind of sort of whistling past the graveyard, as they say. Well, we'll talk with John Chaffley. Um So uh, what you need to know today, and please visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. What you need to know today is um, I, we've got to come up with a rule, a, a name for this rule. And I, I, I'm, I think maybe it's the, a Tucker Carlson rule. So maybe it's the Tucker Carlson rule that we can brand it, but it, it doesn't quite have it. Uh, maybe it's the boomerang. Maybe that's it. Boomerang rule. Let's call it the boomerang rule. And the boomerang rule is this. Whatever the left is accusing other people of, they're almost certainly doing themselves. So we talked about this, and as as I said, Tucker Carlson is one that's popularized this, but let's call it the boomerang effect. The boomerang. I mean, for example, the allegation against Trump that went on with the Mueller investigation and with the media and all these kinds of things, that there was foreign interference in the 2016 election, that was the accusation. Well, the boomerang, the boomerang effect is that It was actually the Democrats, Hillary Clinton, that was colluding with foreign nationals and foreigners to try to damage the election, try to impact the election. So that's an example. One of the ones that one of the boomerang uh, effects that's very common is when it comes to the uh, judgment in the Me Too movement. So the news broke earlier on Wednesday uh, that Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN, Very powerful guy. He's been there almost a decade. I think it's a little bit less than a decade, maybe eight or nine years. Very, very powerful. Very influential. He had been an early um, uh, uh, NBC employee who did um, uh, the early Today Show with Lauer and Kirk and everything. He'd gone on to head up uh, uh, NBC, I think it was, when they did The Apprentice. He basically went out and got those shows. They were done in England first in Britain. Very influential guy, very wealthy, very connected to power. One should note, he's a big supporter early on of Kamala Harris. 
One of the reasons why CNN, I think, was so for Kamala Harris all the time was that on CNN because uh, uh, um, Zucker liked her. And I met Zucker when I was employed by CNN as a contributor. Only met him once to talk to. I saw him at some events and things. Uh, interesting guy. Uh, very, very arrogant. I got very self-confident. I don't know, arrogance. He was successful enough that I, some of his arrogance, I would say, is self-confidence. He knows, knew what he was doing. But CNN accuses everybody else of Me Too stuff, including they fired Andrew, uh, Chris Cuomo for lots of things, especially how women said he acted. Well, it turns out Zucker resigned on Wednesday because he had a, a, uh, an affair with one of his staff that nobody knew about. Now, again, somebody else can come along and say whether this is wrong or right, but clearly in the world of Me Too, it's wrong. Now, I happen to think it's wrong also. And I think I know that Zucker was married, is married. So, I mean, it's all just icky. But icky is not um, icky's not illegal. Icky is common in the world of media and entertainment. But my point is the boomerang effect is Zucker and the others are firing Cuomo, Chris Cuomo, playing hardball on his termination, saying they're not going to pay him. And you know what Cuomo did? He said, um, what about you over there? And so my point is only that a lot of times... When you see people, especially on the left, accusing others of behavior, they're doing it themselves. And in policy, it's really common now. So you have a situation where the Democrats, for example, in 2020 admitted that they used every aspect of their every dollar, everything they could get their hands on to impact the way people voted. They say they did it legally, and I guess no one has yet proven that they didn't. But in 2016, they said, oh, my gosh, the system was gamed. It was rigged. Trump rigged it. Trump rigged it. Trump rigged it. In 2020, they said, oh, it was nothing to see here. And again, I guess that's more hypocrisy than the boomerang effect. But here's where I want to get to. You are seeing story after story now in the liberal media. You'll see it over at the New York Times, Politico, other places. And they will describe in detail how Republicans in certain states are trying to gerrymander districts to protect Republicans and to make it more Republican. Here's the truth. Democrats are really good at that. This is the boomerang. They're doing it in California and New York. In California, New York, and I think one other state, Illinois. By the time they're done, will they, they will have gained 10 seats for Democrats, they will have uh, uh, they will have and they will have eliminated at least at least seven seats for Republicans. In other words, if somebody's gerrymandering, it's the Democrats. And in places like Missouri, of which I'm most familiar, you have a situation where the legislature who gets to draw the maps is about to draw maps so that there are six Republicans and two Democrat leaning seats. Still got to win them, but they're likely to stay in those two parties. And as people are saying over and over, wait a second, most of Missouri is Republican. Why not make it seven and one? And the answer is because Republicans are able to be pressured by the media and the left not to gerrymander. Don't be so cruel. Isn't it fair? You know what they're doing in New York? They don't care what fair is. You know what they're doing in Illinois? Don't care what fair is. You know what they're doing in California? Don't care what fair is. What I'm saying, the Democrats don't care what fair is when it comes to gerrymandering. And that's the biggest way that they will pick up seats. They know it. And the Republicans all across the country in places where they have the chance to decide 
who is representing by positions, by policy preference. You can't pick who is in the seat. You got to still run and file. You got to file and run and then raise money and all that. But what the media is doing, and Politico is the one today that I saw, has an article that says basically, oh, the Democrats are are just about almost going to survive this terrible, terrible gerrymandering uh, by the Democrats. The headline, Dems avert total redistricting doomsday, but they're not out of the woods. Well, remember, Eric Holder, three years ago, I think it was, said, I'm going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to try to influencing to try to influence the redistricting. He didn't say um, redistricting is off limits. We should do something that's sort of, you know, benign and, and friendly and and has no influence. He know Eric Holder said, I'm going to influence the uh, elections in 2020 at the state legislature level precisely so we can pick more seats. Now, he didn't succeed that well. There was no coattails under Joe Biden for lots of people to win legislatures. So in some ways, Eric Holder was a failure. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't stop. He continued his effort with tens of millions of dollars and lawyers. And, and what does he do? They legal they, they do lawfare to try to get places like Ohio, where a Republican Supreme Court justice joins the Democrats, joined the Democrats to throw out the maps that were drawn up by the Republicans. So what the what the Eric holders of the world and those interest groups on the left do is they use the lawfare, the system to do lawsuits. And then they use the media and the PR machine to try to pressure Republicans into hearing things like, oh, boy, if you're going to have these redistricting things, it's going to be so unfair to people. And now you get headline after headline in Politico and Politico basically says, oh, wow, the, de- the Democrats averted disaster. What do you mean? They didn't avert disaster. They actually competed for the last three and a half years. Eric Holder did it and they failed. They failed to persuade the citizens of the country that they should go in their direction. And so you watch what they the boomerang effect is they they say one thing and it's precisely the other. The people, the country dodged the Eric Holder effort to absolutely positively game the system. He, He failed at that. Now the question is, why would the Republicans in power in lots of states not do what is the right thing to do, which is utilize their power to deliver on the goods, on the things that matter? In other words, there was a competition, a competition of ideas and money. In fact, it was probably an unfair competition in the sense that the Democrats, Eric Holder, had hundreds of millions of dollars and the Republicans... As someone pointed out, when, you know, when I was on a radio interview on Wednesday morning in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, and one of my colleagues on there said, when Soros writes a check for $125 million to try to prop up the Democrats in this upcoming 2022 election, which happened last week, Republicans look and go, oh, wow, look at that. That's terrible. Isn't that terrible? And when you say to conservatives and Republicans who work hard to earn their money and they say, uh, you know, write a check for $7,500, they say, oh, that's a lot of money. And they complain if it doesn't go their way. By the way, it's a compliment. Most conservatives don't want to spend their money in the political swamp. But but the, 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 the liberals know. They know the power of it and they know the influence of it. And so Holder had, on the field of battle for the last three years, hundreds of millions of dollars. And in an effort to influence the messaging, influence the campaigns, etc., he failed. And so now the victor, to the victor go the spoils. Except... 
Too often the conservatives and Republicans say, well, I don't know. It's Missouri. Let's let them have two. We'll let one in Kansas City, a Democrat, one in St. Louis, a Democrat, and it'll be six to two. We'll still have. Well, you do that enough. And if the Democrats are ruthless in places like California, Illinois and and, uh, New York, which they have been pretty soon, you have a structural problem that you can't get the majority. That's the way the other side's playing ball. But watch them accuse over and over. Oh, oh man, it's those it's those Democrats, those Republicans that are really taking advantage of the Democrats. It's nonsense. All right, let's take a break. We'll be back with Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report. Don't don't forget visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com to find out more. And uh, be right back. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to catch up with our old friend, John Schlafly. John Schlafly, of course, writes the weekly column with his brother, Andy, the Schlafly Report. You can get it over at townhall.com and also posts and archives at phyllisschlafly.com. This week's column, a pandemic of censorship. Uh, So welcome back, John. How are you? I'm good, Ed. How are you today? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Um, so uh, first of all, let me just do this to you. Have you listened to yeah. Joe Rogan? Have you ever listened to his podcast? Uh, lo- yeah, I, I, I don't subscribe, but I, I have heard, uh, you know, quite a few excerpts and he's uh, entertaining. I mean, he draws an audience. It is um, amazing uh, to me that people are attacking him in such a way right now uh, from all uh, from the left, I guess, or from the, I don't know, establishment. He, he's not exactly conservative. I mean, oh, he, he's he, not he, you know, at all. Right. I mean, it's not even close. Right. So it's, um, you know, someone who backs Bernie Sanders. I think he backed Bernie Sanders because he found him authentic, <laughs> which means you're accepting a lot of other stuff by, uh, by being authentic. All right, John. But so it's a pandemic of liberal censorship. Uh, but I don't know. Did it start um, now or are we just sort of seeing the, the, the crest of it? Well, no, it, it didn't start now. I mean, it's been going on. It's been building, but it's not going away. And I think that, uh, you know, it really began towards the end of 2020, I think, when they then I, I think that, you know, the, the the social media were hesitated to take the president of the United States off. But once they did that, it was like the dam broke. And now they're taking off uh, removing people for much less for, you know, any, you know, for, you know, really unjustified. Well, of course, it was never justified, but uh, they have a lower bar, a lower threshold for taking people off there. And, and p- part of it is a campaign by the left against the social media companies and demanding that they do more to police their sites of what's called misinformation or disinformation. You know, that's such an Orwellian term anyway. That's just all that means is somebody else's opinion. We're only allowed to have one opinion about the major issues facing our country, such as COVID or a transgender movement or a number of other issues. Black Lives Matter. You can only have one opinion about that. And now that we're in Black History Month, all the uh, uh, social media companies are giving a one-sided view of that. Mm -hmm. They're, They're showcasing, you know, only the left side of the African-American experience and not the right side, which is, you know, substantial and worth hearing about. 
Uh, we're talking with John Schlafly. You know, John, I, we, we, you and I talked about this a little bit uh, off the air. Last week's column, we didn't talk much about because we were celebrating the life of Helen Marie Taylor in, in our discussion. Uh, you, that, that column was uh, a titanic hearing on COVID. Thousands of Americans gathered on the National Mall. Uh, people, I think, saw clips of that. We, you referenced in there the book by RFK Jr., Robert Kennedy Jr., The Real Anthony Fauci, which is extraordinary. I, I've been listening to it as a book on tape myself. Uh, John, um, it's clear, isn't it? that it's not like there's a small number of people who have the opinion that Joe Rogan is allowing to be uh, on his podcast. In other words, it's not, you know, I think you referenced that uh, over 500,000 copies of RFK's book was sold about Anthony, Anthony Fauci, which is a, a very negative book. I mean, in the sense that it critiques Fauci so extensively, but my point is it's not like they're trying to silence a view that has like, I don't know, 1% of the population interested in it, if not believing it. We have, you know, in other words, uh, we have differing viewpoints on substantive issues. And yet they're, they're trying to shut down sort of, uh, again, it's not a mar- it's not a fringe uh, opinion. It's not a fringe set no, of opinions. It's, not, it's, it's, it's big. It's not a fringe. And, and the issue of whether masks work. Right. Uh, the issue of whether children uh, how children should be treated in school. Uh, uh, so the issue of whether the vaccine is effective against the Omicron variant. I mean, these are you know issues on which there's you know a great there's substantial uh, opinion. Not just it's not just a fringe. And when the idiotic uh, Prime Minister of Canada Justin Trudeau said of uh, the you know, thousands of truckers converging on their capital up there. Oh, that's just a fringe group. Uh, no, it's not just a fringe group. It's a wide segment. Maybe not be a majority, but it's a substantial segment of the population and of public opinion. Well, and more. Yeah, and more. And that's right. And more interesting in a way it's, it's, is that that we always allowed sort of the fringe to speak unless they were speaking in such a way that was dangerous, right? I mean, if you, the crowded theater idea, if you yell fire in a crowded theater, well, then you can say something. But if you're having a conversation, even about things that are, are uh, really, you know, out there, I mean, some, listen to George Norrie overnight, you know, talk about uh, some of the occult and all these things. I mean, you shake your head and say, oh man, is he making all that up? But we, it's, it's sort of, the American tradition is that it's protected. So what's going on here? Again, we're talking with John uh, John Schlafly, and he and Andy Schlafly write the weekly column. This week's column is called A Pandemic of Censorship. Is it, um, is it uh, righteous delusion? They think they're right, therefore they have to stop it. Is it about control? Do you think it's a, um, a, a, a nefarious plot by certain people to control, or do you think it's more uh, uh, people that have been sort of brainwashed to think a certain way that are going along with that movement? What, what are we dealing with here? Well, part of it is we've, uh, you know, allowed a small number of giant corporations to essentially have a chokehold on the pu- public discourse and uh, the the channels through which uh, public opinion is expressed. And that's, we haven't figured out you know, left or right, how to deal with that. But another thing, Ed, is that we have a rising generation in America who now think that's a reasonable approach. I mean, there's, as you go younger in the population, there's more and more people 
who have bought into the notion that free speech can be dangerous or harmful and therefore should be suppressed. And at right now, where uh, let's say for just for example, the flap that's going on on Georgetown University uh, campus, where they've hired a new lecturer, and because he uh, made a remark, which was a reasonable remark, about Joe Biden's promise to nominate a black female to the Supreme Court, uh, there's an organized effort and an uprising among students to get the guy fired. Uh, you know, never mind academic freedom. We don't have that anymore because, and the argument is made that an opinion, which uh, a segment of the university disagrees with, feels like they're at risk, they're harmed, they need to have a safe space where they can go and cry, they fear, you know, they, they speak in terms of fear of harm to them by an expression of opinion. And this is just nuts. How do people grow up thinking that way? And yet we see that attitude popping up in a variety of different places. Uh, we're talking with uh, John Schlafly again, John, on the question of the COVID stuff, and uh, uh, you know, the, and uh, John's uh, column again uh, uh, posted over at Townhall.com and also uh, at archived at phyllisschlafly.com, a pandemic of censorship. Um, it's part of this is that that's the that's the useful. Um, that's the fear people have, right? So let's go back a year, maybe a year and a half. People were afraid of the COVID. It was unknown. And you could say, well, we're not going to allow people to, uh, you know, to say something that's wrong because it'll mislead people and they'll die. Well, now we're two plus years into it. It's clear that the experts are wrong a lot. They're right some. They may not be right. You know, what Joe Rogan said in one of his, uh, in his, in his, uh, I think, Instagram post about the scandal was he said, you know, if you had said a, a year ago or six months ago uh, that the Wuhan lab was the cause of the virus, people would say that, oh, no, that's you can't say that. That's inappropriate. Now they say it might be true. And, and, and so my point here is the pandemic, the COVID-19, the Wuhan virus has been utilized to um, show how to silence voices. And in your piece, you talk about how Joe Rogan is being pressured because he had a couple of doctors on who were saying something different than the conventional wisdom and their own opinion, but it's extended, right? It's, it's a, a let's go. Brandon mask is going to get you uh, your knuckles wrapped. And, and uh, I suspect if you talk again on elections and say that 2020 was anything other than a hard fought election, you'll find yourself silenced. I, I, and so, but was the COVID the excuse to accelerate this? Is that what you see? And as we break out of the COVID, which, you know, earlier in the, I don't know, Thursday or Wednesday or Thursday, uh, I mean, Wednesday or Tuesday, McConnell, Mitch McConnell said it's time to get out of this. We got to get over it. You know, we have Finland and the UK saying we're going to get rid of all these requirements. feels like we're getting out of it. When we break the fever of COVID, do you expect that we can break the fever of the censorship or are we never going back? Well, certainly the COVID, and as you say, Ed, two years ago, people were feared the unknown, but now it's a couple of things are becoming clear. One is that cloth masks had, have no value and other masks has little value and the and that the vaccine uh, you know while it may have had value in the first year it, it, it's 
no longer protects you against the Omicron, which it has not, which is 90% of the cases now. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, the establishment is still saying we've got to now, they now announce they want to vaccinate children from six months to five years, which is third. And so the, they're going, the people who use COVID to control and divide, uh, they're not going to let that go. And, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to, they're going to continue for another year at least, and perhaps longer if they can, until we get into the next election. And, you know, and the, behind all of this, there's an ongoing campaign, Ed, to prevent Donald Trump from running again for president in 2024. And there's a variety of legal, uh, actions which are percolating. Slightly out of view, you yep. know the, the 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 powers that be felt that it was too close a call yeah. that yeah. Donald Trump either yeah. won or almost won in 2020. They can't take that risk again, yeah. and they're going to you know get court rulings that would disqualify him from even running in 2024. Well, they're going to try. They're going to they're going to try. I mean, I, you know, you look at the front page of, say, Politico.com and I, anybody who reads Politico as the news doesn't understand it's a it's a vehicle for the fake news. But uh, front page is January 6th committee member, quote, Trump absolutely tampering with witnesses, end quote. And what he means is that Donald Trump, by saying, if I was president, I would look at the cases of all these people that are being arrested for January 6th. This this committee member of a congressional committee. It's not a court. It's not anything else. It's not about a. It's saying this, and all this is language that is used to, again, to condition the uh, the the public, and as you point out, also legal challenges over and over uh, for just that. I, I I mean, John, if you had to bet today, though, does Donald Trump run in twenty twenty four? I do think he's uh, yes, I do I, think he's preparing the groundwork, and they just released uh, financial numbers. Yeah, he is well situated to. Uh. You know, restart his new. But as as I said last time, you asked me that that question, Ed. He's got to have a, a platform, yeah. And he's but still, I, I you know, I trust, I have faith that it's being built, but it's not there yet. He's got to be able to speak and address the MAGA world and the whole <laughs> yeah. country. Is can 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 re- can, <laughs> can you say? Can you say, can he say really build the wall this time as part of the platform? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, all right, John, I got to go. John Schlafly, everybody. His column is over at uh, phyllisschlafly.com archived. This week's is a pandemic of censorship. Last week's a favorite of John's is called a Titanic hearing on COVID uh, and a lot more there. Also, townhall.com is where John and Andy's column is posted. So uh, we got to run. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. So I I am going to walk you through an argument. I was going to do an interview. I actually had somebody in mind to do an interview on this. I didn't call them in time. So I thought I'll just walk you through it anyway. I want to talk to you about 
Um, Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, and if you haven't uh, become familiar with Hillsdale College over the years, I'd be surprised, but it's a very unique uh, school, uh, college. Uh, its education is top-notch. Students are pretty wonderful. Uh, more conservative than not, but just mostly more traditional. But part of the power of the school is Dr. Larry Arn, who is a very impressive thinker, as well as, um, you know, an administrator and all. And, and they've been very successful. Uh, and they publish a, a, um, a regular um, mailing. It's called Imprimus. I think it comes every month. It may come every two months, but either way, you can find it. If you go to the website, hillsdale.edu, you can find out more. And I'll put it up on social media. But Larry Arn is the uh, president of Hillsdale. He's been there for about, uh, I don't know, about 15 or 20 years. Very impressive guy. He was on the 1776 commission that Donald Trump uh, started. Uh, I saw him speak at the event that opened the 1776 commission. He's just, he's very thoughtful. He's probably in his... I don't know, late 60s. So he has a sort of professorial style about him also that is very effective. But he gave a speech, um, and the text of which was published in Imprimus. And the speech was given in November, uh, just this past fall, uh, a few weeks after the election. Um, it was at a reception that Hillsdale hosted in uh, Kansas City area, I think Overland Park, Kansas, if I recall. Um, and um, it would be, it's interesting for, it will be interesting for us uh, to, for, to talk about the whole speech. And I may come back to this, to the, the second part of the speech, but I mostly want to talk about the beginning and his first point. So he opens the speech by saying, and he said, there are two major questions I'm going to address. One is how would you reduce the greatest free Republic in history to despotism in a short time? And two is how would you stop that from happening? Now, the fun thing about this is the late Phyllis Schlafly used to always say, you got to diagnose the problem. You got to say what the problem is. Then you got to have a solution. And so I recall, I often tell the story. She was writing a book called Who Killed the American Family? And she came down the hall from her office and she leaned against the door jam in my office. And she said, okay, I've got all the chapters written. Now, the last chapter, the big chapter is what do we do about it? Uh, she had laid out all the different ways that the American family, who had killed the American family. Now, what do we do about it? Well, Larry Arn's second part of this essay that he gives, it was a speech, is what to do about it. But the first part is, um, th this is what I want to talk about. And it's, it's about this question of how would you uh, reduce the greatest free republic in history to despotism? And so here's a little bit of a quote. I'm going to go into this. He said, um, uh, the, uh, the, to establish despotism in a nation like America, you might begin, if you were smart, by building a bureaucracy of great complexity that commands a large percentage of the resources of the nation. Now, that sentence is just it in a nutshell. And I have told you many times the story, I'll tell it again, of my experience being chief of staff to the governor of Missouri. And he was a really good governor. He was a dynamic guy. He was open to lots of ideas. He's a good guy. His name is Matt Blunt, Governor Matt Blunt, a young guy. He's only in his 50s, early 50s now. And at the time, he was in his 30s. And uh, as chief of staff... I was new to government. He had been secretary of state for four years. He'd, he'd served in the state legislature. He'd been around politics enough. His dad is Roy Blunt, Senator Blunt. So he'd been around things enough to know maybe more than I did. I'm sure more than I did. But as chief of staff, I came to realize that the toughest group of people, I would say that they were the enemy in a way, but that's a little too dramatic. But the toughest group of people to figure out and assess how to get them to buy into a vision and buy into um, an idea that could become a law or a policy, 
It was not the legislators. Both parties, you could figure out what motivated them. Some people were motivated by ideology. Some people were motivated by re-election. Most of them motivated motivated by both. But yeah, there were lots of motivations. Some people were motivated by uh, fame and, and wanting to be well-known. It wasn't the lobbyists. They were mostly motivated by their clients, and, and their clients were mostly motivated by business interests, mostly. I mean, there were some of the social uh, lobbyists, I guess, social you know interest lobbyists. Um, and it, it wasn't the grassroots. It wasn't the party po- folks. It wasn't the politician. It wasn't uh, the political consultants. The toughest group of people to deal with were the bureaucrats. To Larry, Larry Arn's par- uh, point, the reason why bureaucrats are so hard to deal with is because they have job security. They're not the appointees that are going to be rolled out. They're second or third or fourth tier below that. And if they do their job in a way that sort of works, you don't really know to object. I mean, do you know how to say whether the, the Department of Transportation guy who does the, the, the surveying of the, the highways is doing a good enough job? You just kind of get a feel for whether they're doing their job or not. And over time, what has happened in this country is the bureaucracy has grown, and it's not just about those bureaucrats. It's now become, as Larry Arn alludes to, their ability to make rules – their ability to set the, the rules, whether they're legal rules or just the, the implementation of the policies that become the norms that people use. And you go down the list, and Larry, on, Larry Arn does this, Dr. Larry Arn does this, and it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And, and he says, as he says, you can distribute, distribute across agencies and centers in the cabinet departments of government all kinds of rulemaking powers. And there's independent agencies that are actually even further outside of the control of the executive branch, and they have more possibilities of what they can do. And he goes through this, and he basically says, once you have this set up, now it can be utilized. Now, it, let's be clear. It can be utilized for good. There, I, I mean, I don't want to be totally, I don't want to say that everybody who ever uh, you know, ends up heading up one of these departments is doing something bad. But what happens is power corrupts. And the direction of the power is towards more control, not less. And again, what I discovered was not that there were bad bureaucrats at every turn. Most of them were benign or, or they were just indifferent. But the inertia was towards what? Towards more accumulation of power, towards more accumulation of influence, towards more accumulation of opportunity for the government to do things, not less. It's almost like, you know, years ago I wrote a piece, uh, I think it was the Daily Caller, a two-part piece, and it was called, I, I think I titled it, um, How to Get to Panem. Panem was the name of the nation in the Hunger Games. And my point was, um, you know, the, the reverse, what we need to do is reverse the setup where the, the districts and our states were becoming just, uh, uh, you know, kind of servants of the capital. And one of the things I argued there was move all the cabinet departments out to the, to, to, to the states you know, move the Department of Agriculture to Omaha and move the Department of Natural Resources to, uh, I don't know, Denver or even smaller, Boulder or Colorado Springs or somewhere and try to decentralize the power to change the dynamic because the dynamic that happens, again, it's not malignant automatically. It's power seeking. It's power growing automatically. And what you see in Director Larry Arn's column and what he wrote about was at a certain point, and it's going to sound like Rahm Emanuel, when there's a crisis, you have an apparatus that's in place, the bureaucracies plus the mindset 
that you can be the ones that figure out how to make things work and it's utilized to dominate the country. And you see it even as the country, and I think the medical science has gotten us to the point where we say, well, we know what Omicron is. We know what's going on. We have to move on with our lives. You still see the power of the apparatus, the, the inertia, the momentum of the apparatus of government in the direction of more control. And in some ways, the only question is, what can reverse that? A lot of times it's collapse in other nations that reverses it. It hasn't been in America. Or a cult, you know, uh, is there a cultural movement that would say more power to the people? I don't know, maybe. But if you look and watch closer, even when Republicans get in, it's just a different kind of centralization of power. And in the case of COVID, it became the Trump administration that with the Republicans that utilized the power, that, that used the power and followed the bureaucracies and followed the momentum of increasing the knowledge and, their, and the power of the people who could make these decisions. It's a very good essay. It's really worth reading. I hope you'll take a look at it. Uh, again, Larry Arn, Dr. Larry Arn, A-R-N-N. If you go to hillsdale.edu and search for Imprimus, it's the uh, its title is The Way Out. And his uh, second part of it, we'll talk about another day, uh, is really interesting. I thought the first part is even more uh, potent, his, his, his description of exactly what happened. So, all right, we'll take a break and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, grassroots activist, author of 27 books, and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. As budget cuts hit many high schools and Title IX regulations hit many colleges, this is a good time to recognize the essential role that sports play in building the character of young men. Ronald Reagan played guard on his college football team, earning a letter for three years. Reagan thrived at other sports in college, too, including track and swimming. Through perseverance and hard work, he became his college's best swimmer and even coached his team for his final two years. The adversity in sports that Reagan faced and overcame as an athlete prepared him well for dealing with the liberals in Washington, D.C. and with the communist Soviet Union during the Cold War. Other presidents who played college football include Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, who was the most valuable player on his national champion University of Michigan team. Another sport, safer and less expensive than football, and perhaps even better at building character in young men, is wrestling. A fourth of our presidents, including the finest, competed as wrestlers while growing up. Three out of the four men carved on Mount Rushmore were wrestlers, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt. Other wrestlers who became president were Calvin Coolidge, Dwight Eisenhower, William Howard Taft, Ulysses S. Grant, and Andrew Jackson. The feminists do not like the masculine sports, such as football and wrestling. They have forced colleges to eliminate hundreds of wrestling programs by applying a feminist interpretation of the law called Title IX to compel schools to terminate wrestling. 
Wrestling and football school programs are essential to developing leadership and character for our nation. It's up to parents to stop the liberals and feminists from taking these athletic opportunities away from young men. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. For more than 50 years, Phyllis led the fight against the dead-end road of radical feminism. Today, with the rise of so many savvy young conservative women, new voices are emerging. You're invited to voice your opinion on what's really important to women at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, we have almost no time. I mean, no time to speak of. And so all I can do is what I should do all the time, which is thank you for listening and thank our great technical director, Noah, for being such a great producer of this program. And uh, also thank Joanna Spilger for what she does. And uh, just encourage you. Sorry about that. I was I thought I had a glitch here in the uh, recording. So thank you to Noah Dingley, great producer, uh, great colleague. Thank you to Joanna Spilger. Everybody, please visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up for the daily email there. And otherwise, stay up on all these great interviews that we have been doing. So uh, Ed Martin, ProAmerica Report. Talk to you tomorrow. Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.